Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24 in just a moment. Colossians chapter 1. If you are visiting uh, with Christ Church today, we are glad you're here and want to tell you where we're in in our series called Enough from the book of Colossians. Uh, I want to answer the question, why are we studying Colossians now and compared to everything else we could be looking at? Uh, if you are new to Christ Church, for the last two years, 2012-2013, we spent two entire years studying through the Gospels, just talking about discussing the teachings of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, what, it, what his teachings tell us about his father, what it tells us about ourselves, and what it tells us about the world we're living in. And so I felt it was really important in 2014 to follow up those two years of, of hearing the teachings of Jesus is to focus ourselves on what the early church did with that. Colossians is one of those letters Paul wrote to a church that was dealing with the same issue. What do you do with this Jesus that everyone speaks of? How do you bring him into your life? How do you respond to him? How do his teachings change reality? And so that's one of the reasons that we decided to pick the book of Colossians. Now, I would like to get rid of the idiot who decided to do Colossians in six weeks. His name's Mark, and uh, he made a horrible choice. Because even studying for this, the text that I have today is, is such a volume of theology about Jesus that I don't know what I was thinking. Well, one of the things we decided to do was Michael DeFazio, who opened the series for us two weeks ago and is a New Testament professor at Ozark Christian, um, we asked him to teach a class this entire semester on Wednesday nights through the book of Colossians. So what we're able to do on Sunday mornings is introduce you to the major themes, but I'm leaving a lot of meat on the bones. And it would really encourage you, if you're not engaged in another class on Wednesday nights, to come out here on Wednesdays. And it's not a boost Wednesday attendance because that's not our point. But I would vary to say today that um, there's a lot lesser things you're doing on Wednesday night than being in a place where God's word is being taught. And if you want to know more about this Jesus, that he's enough, uh, Michael's able to take you into the depth of that and study over long haul of what this book teaches us, this letter, and what we can learn from it. So I really want to encourage you, if you're not engaged on Wednesday night, uh, say no to lesser things and pick something better. And uh, come out here, bring your family, and uh, learn more about what Paul is teaching us about Jesus. Also want to make mention for the last time that Michael has a book called More Jesus. And it's not, we're not promoting Michael, we'd embarrass him if we did. But he has a book that he wrote, which is a devotional through the book of Colossians to give you a reading every day to process what we're talking about. Uh, I've read the book twice, I think it's uh, phenomenal. I have it on Kindle, you can buy it through uh, Amazon if you want to get it on Kindle electronically. But if you want a physical copy... Uh, my understanding is there's uh, several still remaining in our connecting place on the other side of the cafe. And just would encourage you, if you're looking for a good devotional read, that this would be a book uh, that we would recommend. Michael told us in week one that there are two fundamental truths about the book. Remember what you signed up for and remember who you serve. And it was a good introduction to this entire series that Jesus is enough. Last week, Cody talked to us about our image management, how we work really hard to project ourselves as something, and yet by doing that, we often project Jesus as something different than he is. And he asked us a question last week, and when I heard the question, I, it just, it has spun in my head over and over, and that's not, I'm not overemphasizing it, it's true. Cody said, a lot of us spend time in our lives wondering, if, what if Jesus isn't who he says he is? But he challenged us to ask a different question. What if he is who he said he is? Because we're, we're betting our lives on one of those two formats. Either we're, we're venturing to ask the question, what if Jesus isn't what I'm basing my life on? What if that doesn't work out? Instead of asking ourselves the question, what if he is? 
Because the resurrection proves to me he is and how that ought to change our lives. So today I want to talk to you about this series and because I didn't get to introduce it, I'm going to back up a little bit. Not that they didn't do a good job, but this is something we were talking about on last Monday morning with some of the creative arts team and Isaac uh, Shade looked at me and he said, say that Sunday. And when he tells me to do that, I'm going to obey. So if it stinks, it's on him. What we were talking about, and I said, my biggest concern for this series is I'm afraid too many of us will sit here and think about what Paul's saying instead of trusting it. This is not a series to ponder. We're not discussing these things so you have good insight. This is something you must invest your life in. What Paul is telling us about Jesus being enough is fundamental to faith. Because we don't have faith if Jesus is one of many options. You you can't walk by faith and have a security blanket in the background. In fact, on the, on the stage behind me, we live in a world that's, that's trying to grab our attention, and all of these are images. Every single one of them is an image in our culture, even specific to our community, that says that if you have Jesus, great, but if you add one of these new things, if you have the, the new phone or the new tablet or the new computer, if you have trophies and titles and accomplishments... If, if you're on social media and you have lots of friends who constantly poke and like everything you do, that you're really going to have a great life. And I want to say it crystal clear this morning, not to be ornery, but to be honest. If you have Jesus plus something, you have idolatry. If you need something outside of Jesus to identify who you are and bring joy to your life, A, you don't have Jesus, and B, you're studying in idolatry very deeply. Our world is saying you need Jesus plus. Paul says you only need Jesus. And if you try to add the plus, you lose the one thing you truly need. So this is a book not to ponder. This is a book to trust. Paul talks to us about four things, and I want to be brief this morning. It's a big text, and uh, I just want to show you some of the key points that Paul makes that I see. He talks to us about the price of our certainty. If we're going to base our life that Jesus is enough... There's a price that comes with us being sure of that. Verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. I just want to pause a moment there. I don't believe that Paul's suggesting Jesus didn't get it done. But when you invest in Jesus, there's more work to do. Jesus got it all done, but he left us a part of it. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me." Just briefly, what Paul is doing is, when Paul is writing this letter, he is suffering because of the Gentiles. Now, he's not suffering because of what the Gentiles did. Paul is being punished and persecuted by the Jews and taken to the Roman courts to be tried because Paul had the audacity to include non-Jewish people in this kingdom. And if Paul would have chosen to leave the Gentiles out to protect his own interests, he could have lived a very comfortable, accomplished life. But he suffered. 
He struggled. The words Paul uses that he struggled and he, he vied for, he tried, he, he worked for, they're all athletic terms, which means that he left it on the field. He gave his very best. He gave his ultimate effort toward the goal of revealing the mystery. And the mystery was that Jesus chose, or that, excuse me, that God chose the Israelites, the Jewish people, as his chosen people. But they were created and called by God to take the message of the kingdom to all nations. You don't have to go too far in the Old Testament to realize God was not an exclusive prejudicial God. He invited all that wanted to come be a part of his, his lordship and his care for them. He invited all to come. But it was the Jewish nation that he called out specifically through, through Abraham to birth Jesus to bring this mystery all together. And Paul said, the mystery was once concealed, but now it's being revealed. Jesus came to save all men from themselves. And Paul said, I struggle for this. And I'm being punished for this. And what do we draw from, from this acknowledgement of Paul that life's hard? Here, here's what I want every one of us to know. If you live your life to proclaim Jesus is enough, it won't go well for you in this world. You probably won't be rich and famous and well thought of. Paul was all of those things before. But once he met Jesus, he said, I count all of those things as garbage in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. He suffered for the growth of the gospel. You see, the gospel message is not for you to keep. It's for you to spread. And if we live our lives to simply receive the gospel truth, hold it, protect our salvation, and fear of ever getting it dirty, we've misunderstood completely the great mystery. The mystery is Jesus came to suffer so others would know. And I believe you and I can suffer for the kingdom so others know. And it is the challenge. It is the opportunity in front of us. It is the price that we will, we will face. And Paul said, I do all of this to present everyone perfect in Christ. Now that word perfect needs to be broken down into bite-sized pieces for us. Not because you're not an intelligent audience, but because we use the word perfect imperfectly. Many of us think that Jesus came so that we all got our stuff figured out and we all became perfect people. But the church is not a group of perfect people. The, the church is a group of imperfect people that find their perfection in Jesus alone. That in my imperfection, his perfection's enough. That doesn't give me an excuse to continue to live like a slob. What it does is give me passion to, to allow Jesus to fix me, to sanctify me, to perfect me. So Paul says, I struggle so that you will know you're welcome in his kingdom and he is able to correct all the things you've ruined. That sounds like our Jesus, doesn't it? But the world says, well, if you have that and then you live, no, 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 it's not Jesus and. It's Jesus, period. There's nothing that can be added to him. He is either everything or he is nothing. Paul says, I'm betting my life that he's everything. Then Paul shares the desire, his passion. He says in verse, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. As Michael pointed out in week 1, Paul probably never made it to Colossae. We have no historical record of him doing this. He's encouraging from a distance. And he says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All. Paul is trying to impress upon us that you don't need to add anything you bring to what Jesus has already done. You need to accept what Jesus has done and glory in it. 
I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. I have pointed this out over the last five years, and not that you would remember it, but it's really important for me to understand when I read Paul's letters that Paul had a practice. Uh, we, we talked about it when I first arrived here. It was the first sermon series we ever did. That when you read Paul's letters to churches, he's looking for one of three things. In fact, he's looking for three things, but let me show you how it works. You'll notice in his introduction, he always praises God for their faith, hope, and love, unless he doesn't find one of them. And that's probably the reason he wrote the letter. So to some churches, he says, I I love your love and I love your faith, but you have no hope. Or I love your hope and I love your faith, but you've lost your love, Corinthians. So he's writing this letter. I believe that Paul's writing the letter to the Colossians to, to discover a greater hope. And that's why we're studying this series. For those of us who have a Jesus and theology, we'll get rid of the and and rely just on Jesus. So that our hope is built on something proven, and not mere speculation. Paul wants them to remember the purity of the gospel, how it was Jesus alone. He said, I strive and I'm in conflict over this. I'm struggling for you. I'm I'm giving you everything I have. And Paul is doing this by prayer. So the first tangible evidence of Jesus being alone is, and this is such a guilt-ridden statement that I want to tell you right now, if you start feeling guilty, stop it. What are you praying that only God can do? I know for a lot of us, the minute anybody starts talking about prayer, we all of a sudden go, I don't pray enough, I'm horrible. Don't. Because I don't care about yesterday, I want to know about now. If you believe Jesus is enough, and he has all authority, and he's the head of everything, creator of the earth, do you believe he's able? That's why we pray. I don't pray to give God information. I don't even pray to twist God's arm. I remind myself in prayer every day who I'm talking to, who loves me, who created this world, who has all the power, who sent his son to die for me, who gave me the Holy Spirit to lead me. When I talk to that God, I don't even have to ask for a thing because when I'm done, I feel like, man, I'm in a good spot. That's God. So, oh, I forgot to tell God about Ethel in the hospital. God's got it. I forgot to to tell God, I'm sorry I stubbed my toe and said a word yesterday. God's got it. I love my God, and when I talk to him, I don't feel like, oh, God, here's your 15 minutes. In the middle of the day, I stop and I go, God, someone just walked in my office. They're crying. It's a female. Help! (laughs) Those are my prayers. One simple word. God, don't let me say something stupid, please. He helps. You see, I ask you today, what are you praying that God will accomplish? Because Paul said that's where he was doing his striving. Paul said, I can't be with them physically, and I can't be in them internally, so I am going to pray that the God who has revealed everything in Jesus Christ will be real to them. You know, I grew up thinking, if I can't do it myself, I'll pray about it. Now I realize I have to pray or nothing else will get done. And it's not about volume. It's not about having a secret space that you go in every day at 5.30 in the morning to prove how much you love Jesus. If you treated every other relationship that you have in your life the way most of us pray, we wouldn't have friends. So just have a conversation with a God. When you say, God, be with me, he's like, yo, I've been here all day. This is the God we live with. This is the God who loves us. This is the Jesus who came for us. And Paul said it's worth it because teachers, Paul's writing this letter to combat teachers that were telling the Colossian Christians 
that Jesus was pretty cool, but you needed to know astronomy and astrology, that you needed to see in nature, that if you prepared yourself properly, you could bring yourself to a depth of understanding greater than anybody else had. They were called agnostics. That God wasn't engaged in the world, but you could go deeper. Knowledge, gnosis. That you could develop a knowledge greater than everybody else, and Paul says, eh, wrong. Do you really think creation can say more than the creator? I say no. A machine can't tell me what the inventor wanted it to do. And the world said, just look around at nature and it will give you depth of knowledge. And did you hear what Paul just said? He said, no, let the creator give you knowledge. He came in bodily form. His name was Jesus. He's perfect. And then he gives us the challenge in verses six through nine. He writes, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. This passage that Paul uses echoes at least four Old Testament passages. Let me give you examples of two. In Psalm, the first Psalm, the first song recorded in the Psaltery says that a wise man is planted like a tree beside the river. Its roots go deep and it draws its life through those roots. You go to Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter 15. He compares that a wise man is like a bush planted beside a stream and a foolish man is one who's planted in the desert with no source. And Paul uses that imagery to say we need to be rooted in Jesus, that our roots go down into him. We draw our life from him. We may be pretty on the outside, but our strength comes from within. He says rooted and then built up and strengthened. And if you study the original language, all of the action being done is not by the plant, it's by the source. So Paul says, when you know who Jesus is and you give yourself completely to him, your roots will go down into a place you can't reach on your own. You will get a strength that you can never develop on your own. And you will grow and produce fruit that has nothing to do with you. I think we could sum it up by saying Jesus is pretty awesome. And he's all you really need. And for most of us, there's this hole in our life that we're trying to fill with created stuff instead of asking the creator what's to fill that hole. And Paul's answer would be, it's found in Jesus, the only place you'll see it. Verses 8 and 9. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ is all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He said, there are voices in your ears, people. And he's talking to me. There are voices that are represented on this stage. That if you do this or have this or portray yourself this way, if you let this make you feel good or make your life easier, if, if you have possessions and you have all of these things, then you're living a deeper life. You understand life better. And Paul says, no, that's an empty and shallow philosophy because your money doesn't make you happy. Your friendships don't make you happy. Your possessions don't make you happy. Technology can't make you happy. Joy comes from the Lord and joy is found in the Lord. Because even the happiness we get from these things, it doesn't last. People aren't any, any happier today because they're on Facebook. People aren't happier today because they got married. They're not happier today because they got a promotion or they make more money. Creation cannot replace the creator. And Paul's talking to a group of people who have been sold that Jesus plus something gives them everything. He says it's not true. 
In fact, he tells us to see to it, or some translations say, be on your guard. This is not something to be taken lightly. I'm not chicken little running around going, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. I think it already fell. I think we're living in a broken world that is trying to fill itself with temporary things because it doesn't want to stop and realize how unhappy it truly is. Paul says, but the answer is not in the and something else. It's in Jesus. And most of us, myself included, are struggling because we never have given ourselves to Jesus only. We've given ourselves to a church and Jesus and good teachings and helping raise my kids. And that's not what you were called to do. You were called to surrender your entire life to Jesus, to trust him in all decisions and in all ways. And it's not a bad lifestyle. Remember what Cody asked us last week. What if he is the son of God? Would you have any other needs? If the Jesus who could calm the waters, who could cast out demons, who could heal all illnesses, who could make lame people walk and blind people see, and who could tell a dead person to come out of the grave and Lazarus obeyed. Is there anything you face he can't fix? The world says, yeah, but you know, the church isn't for everybody. Maybe it's not, but Jesus is. And the church becomes a rather fascinating place when you know its founder. And you understand why he called it together. He didn't call it together for this. He called it together that what we hear today and what we testify to today and how we encourage each other will give us life and hope as we walk into our week. So don't come and just listen. Come and change. Listen and participate and trust and step forward and see what God does. Because the world is telling you human traditions. I encounter this quite often, and I don't want this to be a negative. In fact, I have prayed all week long that this part of today's uh, talk will not be offensive, but it may. Because some of us are more concerned about the tradition we were growing up in instead of the reality we're currently in. You come from a different church background? Listen, we don't ask where you come from here. We ask one simple question. Do you love Jesus and trust him? And you can come from any background because it doesn't really matter. The question is not when you stand before God one day, he's never going to ask you what church did you attend, how much did you give, and did you go every Sunday and Wednesday and Sunday nights if they had it. And I'm grateful he's not asking those questions. He's going to look at you and say, what would you do with Jesus? Did you trust him? I don't mean did you acknowledge he was God because acknowledging he was God doesn't change anybody's reality. Satan knows he's God. But did you acknowledge him? Did you live trusting that his wisdom was greater than man's? That his satisfaction was more fulfilling than the earth? Did you trust him? And if you're feeling guilty right now, you don't need to. Because he's less worried about you yesterday than he is you right now. So what will we do with this Jesus? Because the world is saying you need something else, and Paul's saying you have all you need. We'll choose one of those today. And then he tells us about the gift that is found in our certainty of who Christ is. And you don't get these gifts if Jesus isn't your only. Verse 10, And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, what Paul has done is he has said, you know, here it is, here it is, here it is. You come to church and you wonder, why are we talking about Jesus? Everybody agrees he's Jesus. We're not talking about our agreement. We're talking about our trust, our faith, our stepping out. And Paul says, when you trust that Jesus is enough, look at the work he's done. Remember the purity of the gospel. You don't need anything more than Jesus has already given you. You need his spirit and you need faith. And he provides both of those. In verses 11 and 12, he tells us that we have freedom from sin's power. And he uses a real awkward, in America, a real awkward relation to circumcision. Circumcision was an act that the Jews did, the the Jewish males did, to enter into covenant with God. They would have their foreskin taken off and thrown away. The concept of circumcision was a cutting off of the filthy flesh and discarding it. You know, someone even made a comment today, no one walks around with the foreskin from their circumcision as a reminder. Ick, we get rid of it. And when children are circumcised at young age, they're just, it's disposed of. And in the Old Testament, that was a covenantal agreement to enter into God's people. And Paul says to that, that the circumcision done by the hands of humans was just a cutting off of the flesh of an external organ that never changed the heart. But it was a step of trusting God and entering into relationship with him. Paul says, but you have been circumcised in your heart, not with hands that are human, but with the hand of God. And he has taken away the darkness from us. He's taken away the the sin and the, the filth, and he's discarded that. As far as the east is from the west, it's been removed. Church, I think that's good news, don't you? And that wasn't done because you asked him to. That was done because Jesus died on the cross, and by the power of his life, we have freedom over sin. So you can say no to sin. No longer can you say, I can't help myself. You choose not to. Because the power that Jesus has given us does not mean we'll be perfect, but we will be sanctified and our appetites will change. And slowly but surely, he will take us from the things that are full of filth and he will introduce us to the better things of life. That's one of the gifts he gives us. And then he says that like circumcision, baptism does something that only God can do. And I know, and I'm very conscientious of this, when I talk to people that come from different churches in the area or different religious backgrounds, everybody holds their breath here whenever a preacher on this stage says baptism. Because the rumor is we're going to make you get wet. No, no, we don't make anybody do anything. But here's what we want you to understand. Regardless of your religious background, baptism is a beautiful imagery of entering into a wedding relationship with the bride. Oh, excuse me, we're the bride, he's the groom. And Paul uses that imagery. Baptism is a washing away of the old life with a clear conscience, Peter says, to be raised newness of life, to walk in that newness of life, to be cleansed, a ceremonial cleaning. Now let's be crystal clear for those that want to criticize Christ Church of Ornogo. You will never ever hear any one of us tell you that baptism saves you. That's not biblical. Let's be clear. Jesus saves us. And there's no question about that. He doesn't save me because I'm good. He doesn't save me because I beg. He saves me because I place my faith in his life, death, and burial and his resurrection. And through that power, baptism equips us and shows us what that is. Being buried in the water, being washed clean, arising new, being resurrected and going on in hope. That's what the symbolism means and it is important. Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel, uh, gospel, baptizing and teaching. So we baptize here, just like most churches do. 
But see, the contention for many of us is that we say, well, I don't need to be baptized. Then you're disobedient. You're disobedient to what the early church taught. You're being disobedient to what Jesus taught. And you're basically saying to God, once again, I want Jesus on my terms. And as Cody said last week, that's image management. Jesus will never accept you on your terms. He can only accept you on his. And baptism is an act of obedience to a loving God, not an act of obedience to get something. And so Paul says it's like a circumcision that only changed the flesh. Baptism changes the heart, changes the mind, changes the relationship. Verses 11 and 12, or excuse me, 13 and 14, he tells us we have forgiveness of sins. Most of us understand that. Paul uses amazing language. He says, and it was nailed to the cross. He draws distinctly for the Gentiles all of the rumors about this Jesus who was killed a criminal's death. Paul says, yeah, that criminal's death was your freedom. Not only does the power of sin no longer have effect on you and you can overcome it through the power of the Spirit, but now all of your past has been forgiven and if you'll accept the blood of Jesus Christ, your past, your present, and your future are in his hands. They're pretty good hands to be in. And then lastly, in verse 15, he uses some powerful language about victory over the forces of evil. He says, having disarmed the powers and authorities. Paul uses a military image there that's pretty passionate for me. It's about a conquering hero who goes before those they've conquered and takes their weapon and makes them bow in submission and marches into the great city with the captives behind him showing that he has won it. I love history. I was raised by a mom and dad who took us to historical sites for vacation. I don't know if it was a cheap way out, but I enjoyed it. And one of my American heroes, and it may be controversial, that we, we can talk over a cup of coffee someday, but I tend to believe that Robert E. Lee may be one of the greatest Americans ever. This was a man who in defeat could have destroyed our nation by sending the southern troops to all parts of the jungles and forests and kept just doing this guerrilla warfare and devastating our country, but he was a man of dignity. The generals he fought against on the north were, were men that he went to West Point with. He was a phenomenal man of principle. And regardless of what the war means to you, when he surrendered the southern troops to General Grant in Virginia, it was customary at that time for the conquering general to say to the surrendering general to not even refer to him by his rank, but to make him take off his sword and his sidearm, to take off all the regalia that identifies him as a commander of a foreign troop, and to make him submit before the conquering hero. But General Grant would not do that. History records that Grant allowed Lee to walk in and all of his uh, comrades to walk in with their swords and their sidearms present. He did not make Lee bow down or, or to act in any conciliatory way. He simply asked for the terms of surrender. They were agreed upon. They saluted one another, and Grant restored the dignity to Lee. And Lee would go on to become a college president and live a fruitful life because he restored, he was a good man who deserved honor. I tell you that story because I'm going to tell you the opposite that Paul just said. Paul says when Jesus returns, Satan will appear before our, our Savior Jesus and he will not be received as an equal. He will not have his weaponry. He will grovel in the ground because creation before the creator cannot stand. And this one who is promising all of us that Jesus plus something is a real life, that person will fall on his face and he will admit the one thing we all must admit, that Jesus Christ is truly God and Satan is not. 
And the conquering hero will tell the defeated that you are done away with and you are gone. And that's the Jesus we serve. The world says, no, he's too kind. He's too compassionate. No, the end of the book, the prophecy says, when the real king shows up, the fake king disappears. And the world says, you need more than Jesus. Read the book. You've got all you need in the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of hope. What are you living your life for? Because nothing compares to Jesus. Around this room are four tables with lamps lit on those. And we're going to ask people to go there in just a moment. When we sing, you're going to have an opportunity. Some of us, and, and I say this as a friend offering you the gospel. Some of us have sat and said, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm just not sure. I'm going to ask you. It's going to take a massive step of faith to make Jesus everything. It won't be convenient. People won't understand. If you're waiting for applause, you won't get it. If you're waiting for everyone to tell you it's a great idea, you won't get it. At one point in every one of our lives, we have to take a step of faith and say, no matter what the world says, no matter what the noise around me says, no matter what all these possessions offer me, I'm going to choose Jesus. I'm going to base my life on it. I'm willing to suffer for it. And even though I don't know half the things I'm getting into, I believe that the grace of God, the mercy of God, that he can take sin away from me, he can forgive me of all of my failure, and he can give me a hope and a promise. That king, that victorious king is coming back one day and I want to stand in his presence and then I want to bow at his feet and I want to be able to say, you were my God, you were my Lord, you were my everything. So I ask you today, if you have any questions, any concerns, we're here to be with you. You're not a product, you're not a commodity. We're not trying to get you to make a decision so we can keep a chart. We're saying, I want to testify here this morning. I believe Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and I'll bet my life on it. And if you want to join me in that lonesome walk of following Jesus, then when we stand and sing songs of praise to our king, songs that declare Jesus has got this in his hands if we trust him, and you want to make that walk with us, you're surrounded by people of faith, people who want to grow in Jesus. If you want to make that decision this morning, as we stand and sing, go to one of the tables so we can share with you what your king is asking you to become. Let's stand together.